at the end of this, a child is consuming this curriculum. So we have to think from a commercialization standpoint, but then we also have to think from an in loco parentis in the role of a parent, a mm. pedagogical standpoint about what will happen to children if we do this, right? Mm. We can't we can't just flip burgers and make this the ingredient because we save five cents. Mm. Maybe we spend two dollars. And that's the choice that we make as educators mm. that might be counter to how you'd behave in a business world. But we'll we'll find that line between like commercialization, innovation, thinking as educators, thinking from a business standpoint. Howdy, welcome to this week's episode of the Idea to Impact podcast. I'm your co-host, Beth Durmeyer, and this week Jack and I sit down with Drs. Raphael Lara Alessio and Matthew Etchels of CRIDELA, which stands for the Center for Research and Development in Dual Language Acquisition here at AM. With the help of licensing managers at Innovation Partner, Cordilla recently licensed a program called Stella, which was developed from decades of research conducted by Dr. Lara, Dr. Tong, and several other colleagues to a company called Frog Street LLC. Dr. Lara and Dr. Edgels discuss how their backgrounds in private industry have shaped their perspectives on both research and commercialization. If you don't think you need to commercialize your research in order for it to have the greatest impact on the world, this episode just might change your mind. Let's get started. Howdy, and welcome back to another episode of the Idea to Impact podcast. My name is Beth Duermeyer, and I'm joined here by my co-host. Jack Manhire. And we've got Dr. Raphael Lara Alessio and Dr. Matthew Etchels. So um, they are with the College of Education um, here at Texas A&M, and they are with the Center for Research Development and Dual Language Acquisition. Did I get that? close? Okay. Yeah. Okay. And literacy acquisition. You got it. Literacy act. That's what it is. Okay. So um, we are going to be talking to them today about all things commercialization. And like we normally do, we're going to kick it off by asking. Um, for each of you to tell us, what is your earliest memory of being an educator? My grandfather on my mother's side was uh, a deputy head of the school um, just around the corner from where we lived in, in Manchester. Um, so I had a lot of that early kind of modeling of education from him and sort of ways of behaving. And he was, uh, he taught horticulture as well as being the deputy head of the school and then my mother um I was a little bit troublesome as a child <laughs> shockingly and my mother became a, um, a lunch lady uh like a lunch monitor to keep an eye on me um and then continue to work in education for the next like 20-30 years as um a classroom support and became like the leader and all that so I was in classrooms um you know we'd have a day of school but the primary school was still in or my grandfather would take me um, to do bees in the gardens. He was a beekeeper at various schools. Um, the main teaching centre in Manchester had a bee had a beehive as well, so he would take me there. So I'd see a lot of like professional development for teachers going on. Really funny, right? I'm like an eight year old, five year old walking around these professional de- development centres, and now this is what I do for my job. 
it's really um, cool. This is real, a real kind of, you know, you wonder why, like, why, why am I passionate about what I do? Why am I interested in what I do? Why do I lean a certain way? You know, why do I take the, the road left instead of right? Um, and then I think when you think back through your personal identity and your history, like that, mm. that vein of your family that runs through generations, you're actually yeah. all going in a pretty straight line. It's not this random, <laughs> <laughs> this random thing. So we've had a lot of educators. Uh, my father used to be um, an educator for Canon who would train people as service engineers. Um, so we've, we've had it in our family. But I remember being in classrooms um, when I was uh, 15. Uh, and we were doing work placement or my mother would say you know I had a couple of days off school and I would go in and be classroom support um, which was shocking back then you know like I've got like a little woolen waistcoat on and probably yeah. the most horrendous photos that I hope never come to yeah. light but I remember being in classrooms from a, an early age and always thinking um, like I really enjoy this like I, I like being around children um, I enjoy the classroom environment seeing a child like the, the light bulbs go off in their eyes um, but then also I was really interested in the administration side and the teacher side as well um, of how schools work and like what is school um, like what is this thing um, and then as I got a little bit more on in my career I became really interested in what is international education um, which is what led me here so that was kind of where I started at sort of a young age getting shown the ropes um, and then that blossomed into where we are now. Now, did your, did, your, did your mom have to be the lunch lady because you were just an unruly child? Was that her introduction to your, the hands-on part of your education, Matt? That's, that's the story that was about <laughs> when I was going to take any girlfriends home or anything. So. I'm going to go with that. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm, I'm shanking people in the playground. And like, you know, like, like I'm the, I'm the, uh, the godfather of kindergarten. Right? <laughs> but it wasn't, it wasn't like this. I think I um, tripped one person uh here's the story her name was lynn price and i, okay. I tripped in the playground and she fell over uh and oh. broke her arm and oh wow this was a game tripping up other children in a british playground is, is a legit game oh wow okay <laughs> and we wow. were all playing this game and she fell over and broke her arm and the deal we made right negotiations from an early age the deal we made was that if she didn't tell him if she didn't say anything uh then i would date her for two weeks that was what i negotiated <laughs> And I think we started at like a year or something and I got it down to two weeks. <laughs> and that was, that was my first uh, contract negotiation. That's pretty good from a year to two weeks. Yeah. It's all fun and games until solid. someone breaks an arm, you know. It's all making deal happy. Yeah. And I now understand you a lot better. And I now understand why you're so good at negotiating and doing it since we were on the playground. There we go. I think that's the whole podcast. We can just, we, we're done. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, got, I got one more. I got one more question for you, though, Matt. On that, and more serious question. Um, I have lots of follow-up questions from that. <laughs> well, when you when you have, um, you know, like I had a father who was very interested in counseling and psychology, mm. and in so many ways, because as I was when I was younger, he would bring me on these retreats, and I'd see how he would employ these methods, and then I, you know, I could see what he was doing and the instruments he used. I've kind of become jaded. Like I know the inside baseball part of counseling and psychology. So I know when somebody's trying to counsel me, uh, did, did at any point being inside of education and knowing what was happening kind of jade you toward the whole process. Like I know you're doing, you're doing a wait time, aren't you? You're wait, you're counting to three, aren't you? Waiting for some answer. Or, or was it actually easier because of that? Yeah, well, like, I'll, I'll say two things. So my, my mother's a counselor. 
Um, okay. After she finished her education, she went back, got a degree, and now she's a full-time counsellor, retired full-time counsellor. Um, so I, I understand what you're saying right. about counselling from a parent. And then my dad being an engineer, that was the technical side. So I got the feeling side. Gotcha. Um, and like reading people and standing people, list, actively listening from my mother. Right. Um, and then I got all that technical stuff, like how do things work, why do things work from my father. But I, I do definitely um, approach classrooms from an analytical stance because when I started my career, you know, 20 plus years ago um, in Kent, just outside London, um, I had the opportunity to start as head of drama. So I, I never started my career and kind of worked my way up through the ranks huh. of schools. I started in right. leadership. Um, and then had been, you know, despite my best efforts to be in the classroom, had always been tapped for big school projects, leadership, recruitment. I'd always kind of been asked to do more um, than, than teach. So I think that technical side of it was always really intriguing to me. That's really interesting because as we're going to get get to, and for those who are you know, maybe just joining us, we're going to get into this um, this this curriculum that you that you guys have developed, and we'll talk more about it. That it is the science fused infused literary program that is state of the art and leading edge, and we'll talk about why it's leading edge in a little bit. Uh, but it sounds to me, Matt, hearing your story, and we'll hear Dr. Lara's story as well. You, I can see these elements of your early development, and it makes sense where you're leading, what, how you got to this in so many different ways. Absolutely. And, w- and when we started looking at Stella, um, it was it was all these different chunks. It was all these different phases of being done and edited. And one of the things I did when I first came into the grant was met with Dr. Lara and met with Dr. Derby many, many times, um, many different occasions for many hours, and started to look through like what what do we have and what are we doing and what can we do with it, right? Just kind of a, like an assessment of where we're at. And that piece is something that I knew we could get done. When I, when I looked at Stella and I saw it and Dr. Toby and Dr. Zara laid it out and I actually saw the lessons and I saw the pieces, that's when I was like, oh, we can finish this. Yeah, nice. Right, we, we can get this finished, we can get this out. This is something like, I can do this. Right? This is something we can get done. Like I can see the steps. Right. Getting this done. And then some of the things like adding the student workbook, was then clear to me because I was saying, well, when I was in the Middle East teaching and, and being head of English, we had curriculum like this. I think this piece is missing for us right now. Gotcha. And then Dr. Dr. Obi and Dr. Lara were coming in saying, well, what about the 21st century learning skills? And what about the um, the financial literacy? And where, where are these other pieces, right? These need to be here, mm. right? From the other stuff we were seeing and then meetings that they were in with the government and kind of what the government was saying and then I was saying, well, if they want that to be happening in grade eight and, and grade 10 and grade five, where, where is that? Where's the seed for that, that way of doing things to grow? So, it, 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 you know, there's a great book called Emergence um, that talks about where ideas come from. Because sometimes you think it's this eureka moment, just one person mm-hmm. having an idea and, and it's me. And academia is terrible for this because we create an environment in which one person gets the award, Right. One person gets to go to conference, one person's up talking, one person gets the award, one person gets the title, right? So academia is really um, almost countering to mm. this innovative, collaborative way that things come to being in the world. Um, and Emergence talks about how ideas are actually bubbling for a long time. And the moment where you say, oh, we should do this, is probably two years ago when, mm. when you had that initial idea. Somebody said something in the corridor and it, it's just 
like you know just this little seed is just growing and right years later the fruit is ready and you go oh that's the idea mm. but it's not new in any way so we so I've, I've been with them for two and a half years but this is something that dr Irving dr Wara thought about you know 14 years ago this has been a, wow. a whole chunk of their career i've just kind of come in at the end and you know like press the button on the coffee maker <laughs> but that's a great segue right beth let's talk to dr laura a little yeah 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 we've heard dr laura a little bit about your background um and you are from guatemala which jack and i are very familiar with guatemala jack have you been to antigua yet i have not been to guatemala i have had the guatemalans come here and i've spent a lot of time with the people from guatemala but i have yet to see the volcanoes myself so yeah. We're missing one of the most beautiful opportunities to be surrounded by volcanoes. I know. Yeah, we have our, our homes there, so very welcome anytime. Oh, thank you. I'm going to take you up on that. Yeah. Yeah. It's beautiful, Antigua. I remember staying at my hotel and I'm having my tea, my coffee and, and tea in the morning. And I'm just looking out the window on my, in my patio and there is like a volcano yeah. erupting right. you know, hundreds of miles away, but I can see right. it. It's right there. That, that place called Antigua is pretty much well known across the world, like the eternal spring place. Yep. All yep. the time you see flowers, roses. Oh, nice. Don Pilar has a coffee place out there as well to make some coffee. Oh. No, I don't know why companies, no, just say coming from farmers, we always keep this tradition to keep a little piece of land. Mm. And uh, I have brothers who are involved in agriculture, now retired, but uh, we always keep, um, let's say, 100 plants of coffee, enough to have 100 pounds of wow. coffee ready to drink. So it's that kind of tradition. Uh, but in part, the quality is because exactly like Elizabeth says, uh, this area is surrounded by volcanoes. Mm-hmm the furrow of the land and makes this unique place a unique place yeah, yeah. 100 pounds of coffee that's about what i drink every morning so that's <laughs> oh my Lord. you won't believe it it's, it's a unique place it's a unique place i would like to start uh, thinking about uh, i had different line of motivation because uh, i we can talk it but let's say be focused to what jack was alluding meaning science the power of literacy, literacy infusing science. I remember during my early years at the National University, uh, taking seriously my courses in physics, chemistry, biochemistry, mathematics. They had many classmates struggling understanding concepts. And they actually invited me in the afternoon to go to their homes. They offered dinner, of course. Um, I will try to explain what the professor taught in the morning. And Sarah says, you, you have this unique characteristics to explain tough concepts in a very simple way. And then I start reflecting about what they were saying. And then I start thinking how wonderful it would be if I could have the opportunity to mentor the new generation of students, especially students attending elementary education, meaning uh, elementary, middle school, and high school. So when I received my general degree in science, physics, mathematics, and also another degree in teaching, 
like I said last time, uh, I was privileged by receiving my position uh, in a beautiful rural school in the highlands of Guatemala when I had the opportunity to mentor, to teach indigenous coming from different communities, the beauty of science, but specifically mathematics. And that is the most uh, relevant line of motivation for me to think the power to write some type of material and to be able to disseminate among not only students, among everyone, you know, colleagues, people, students, families. And that's pretty much my initial motivation in those subjects. Because uh, when I was young, I was also in the lifeguard mm -hmm. and I served in the Pacific Ocean for maybe 10 years. Wow. Um, so I had the opportunity also to lead a group of people saying how to rescue people when they are a mile away from the ocean and from the shore, etc. So I started seeing that I, I had this kind of uh, personality for being able to share. Uh, people follow me. Right. And, and to the date, still, I had this kind of things. Uh, I'm the division chair for our huge bilingual ESL programs. I developed the center for uh, development for the original dual language and literacy acquisition with the main to make this center expanding and reaching different kinds of audiences in formal and no formal education. So I continue having this kind of um, something like it's part of my life, the opportunity to share what I know and to provide the new generation with better tools. And I think that if something do this in a beautiful way is the art to teach and the art to be committed to help others. And that's just like, I think, I, I hope all teachers kind of have that same um, motivation. They want to help others. They whether that's the students, whether that's peers, other teachers. Um, so talk to me about how, um, so recently um, you, know, you, you had this curriculum that was put together and licensed, but where did that curriculum come from? How long has the center been up and running and how long, uh, how far back does the research go? And maybe we should introduce the name the name as well, right? The, the name yeah. of the curriculum and the product. Excellent, right? excellent question. Um, number one, I had the opportunity, since I was a teacher, to carefully pay attention in subjects such as science, math. There many things are explained in symbolic language. I'm then wondering why Johnny, Mary, don't get the algorithm to respond to the problem. And then at the end, I discovered that the problem is not that they don't have the cognitive capability. It's a matter of language. Mm -hmm. They still don't understand when we say, if Johnny makes three hours per, three dollars per hour, if he works eight hours a day, how much he will make. They have problem understanding the terminology per, per week, per month, the symbol of, even, even though everyone, everyone knows the symbol of dollars, they still have problems understanding. So then I see, well, 
in part is our own fault for not being able to associate the language concept with the meaning of the mathematical and science process. Understand? And then I said, well, that would be something like we could like to pursue in the near future. You know, America, our country is incredible competitive, competitive, meaning in order to get a good, good, good federal grant, you have to present the cream of the cream in terms of uh, what you are proposing uh, to convince federal officers that this is a real good investment for the country. And in other words, they expect some type of results that in our terminology are valid, are reliable, and have the power to go beyond one single setting. So in other words, they are demanding for a high level of research expectation. So this is exactly the, the, the kind of uh, opportunity that we had and thinking how critical it is to work as a team. To get a mayor grant and conduct this type of research, one or two individuals, honestly speaking, is wasting your time. Mm -hmm. It has to be a, a strong interdisciplinary group who knows exactly his or her role. And then other group trying to figure out the number of students, how the randomized process is going to take place, who will be controlled, who will be experimental, um, to pilot the curriculum that we believe has the power that at the end of a semester or a school year, kids will be able to grasp very well, not just only the content, like science, mathematics, but also understanding the literacy part, the reading and writing process. Nicolaer, I have a question. How did how did you find your uh, like co-PIs for your okay. grant? I mean, if, if it's an interdisciplinary yeah. team, how did you go yeah. out? Yeah, find yeah. Them? You know, uh, last last time I was sharing that I was lucky. Don't, every, everything in life is a learning process. Everything in life is a learning process. So I was lucky by coming to a private business when I discovered immediately that you alone don't do nothing. You have to have the experts talking about this. For me, it was shocking. Tomorrow we're going to invite people from Washington are coming and you have to be prepared to housing and nice hotels, right. nice restaurants. But don't say this is the hotel or this is the restaurant. You have to approach, this is the kind of restaurant that we have in Oregon. This is the kind of hotels. Which one would you like to stay so we can maybe facilitating, 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 facilitating. And then that for me was a wonderful learning process because that is exactly what we do in grant. We need someone who deal with a randomization, expert randomized studies, expert doing longitudinal studies telling us what to do. Of course, we have the theory from our years in the doctoral program, but we need to have people who are having on the ground. And also when we follow the RFP response for proposals, they explicitly are expecting to use the same language that the government is asking for. So then it's up to you. You can put good players playing with you or just anyone. But at the end of the day, you get the, the grant because you put good players and good ideas and good proposals. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So this is has been our, our so uh, 
extremely lucky, yeah, uh, at the beginning, I, like I said, 1991, when I came to Texas a I was also working very close with the school districts, helping, helping bringing resources, bringing money, uh, especially in these areas where it's so complicated, uh, in Houston area, believe it or not, 74% of the program pretty much happen in Spanish because the majority are coming from Mexico and Central America. Yeah, if we don't deal with that language, so a lot is missing there. So then I saw how critical, how critical is to have this type of background, to interact with teachers, to know so. I start working with them, with them, with purposes, because I knew that someday I would need those school districts to support my effort at a higher level. So then I was lucky meeting Dr. Erby in 1991, and I started seeing the talking, this opportunity to start doing kind of research, but we had to start in a school district. Uh, and then uh, our doctoral students in the program went for Wayton, when she was uh, at the beginning in the program, the Dr. H.O.S. graduate, uh, CNI, uh, who I saw immediately on her a strong background in statistics. I said, this is the kind of people that I really need for this kind of purpose. So Elizabeth, that was the way that we started building up, building up, building up, building up. And then the opportunity to test our ideas with the entire support from the superintendent and the superintendent personnel. So this takes so, time. I mean, this exactly, is exactly. That takes oh, yeah, time. time. When One I time share time. to my colleagues, because they say, wow, Rafael, over a hundred million dollars. Yes, but it's for my life. I have been fishing all my life in different, <laughs> different lines. Yeah. And that's exactly what, what it is. Today is more easy for us to get grants. It just the last grant that we received last December is $8 million. Wow. But keep in mind, the same agency has been giving us before that 12, and the same right. agency before that 15. Mm. That's not usual at all to one single academic unit can get, my goodness, what, $20, $35 million. That's not usual. Right. They think that all universities deserve opportunities, but they already know our job, our commitment. I don't know if I share with you in another grant, when we finish the six years of implementation, evaluation, etc., I still have a million dollars left. Mm -hmm. I have to return back this money. You say, what? Mm -hmm. You did that? Yes. I cannot justify spending a million dollars right. in three months, you know, because I know that the door will be closed or continue will be open for me. So I returned the $1 million back to Washington. They were not happy because the money doesn't return to the agency. It has to right. funding. Right. But, but, you know, so there are many things that you right. are, we are learning across the passage of time. Yeah. So that's a, that brings up a good point because... Go ahead, Matt. There's the thing I was going to say... Um, which is really interesting because I think one of the things that we want to think about at the university and at universities in general is where's the next Dr. Lara going to come from? Because mm. really, really, we, we depend on giants in the field like Dr. Lara to be pillars of funding right. for the university and to create revenues and income uh, and sustainability and grant streams for the university. So if we don't have a clear, strong uh, cohort of people coming through that are skilled, um, like Dr. Lara and like Dr. Irby and like Dr. Tom, where's that money going to be in 20, 30 years, right? The, the, 
from from our perspective, there's about 70 people that then are supported financially from that grant. Mm. Um, so you really have to think it. about like what's happening in the yeah. field with training. How how do we? Because we think we think like uh, platypus, right? The way our organization thinks, we think like we're a platypus. Oh, what? We're not. We're not quite a duck. We're not quite platypus. Like okay. platypus. Perry the platypus. Yeah. <laughs> That's what you the first connection with uh, the concept of commercialization. Um, I told my colleagues, you guys, don't worry. We receive fifteen million dollars. Don't expect that next month we're going to receive another thing. No, no, no. It's going to. We have to wait a couple of years in order to, but it would be nice also when we had the opportunity to see our top administrator, Dings, going to Washington, attacking to the director of mayor agencies, wondering what is the kind of uh, assistance that we can receive. So our Dean came to, to Washington in her normal routines, attacking uh, to officers. And one of the agencies that had provided in the past good grants, they say, those guys don't need too much research. Those guys need to commercialize their products. Mm. Those, those, those great products has to be outside in the school, impacting teachers, impacting professors, impacting uh, uh, families, impacting students. And then we received that message from her. I said, you guys, it's time for us to find out. As you can see, and Dr. Echo prepared also paperwork. We are actually the first, the pioneer in our college introducing the concept of commercialization because still people don't think that this is part of the university. I do believe should be part of the university business. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. So we start practically, after Dr. Echo started doing this kind of connection, learning the whole process. And with your assisting, we have been able to continue moving. Our main goal is to put all our research convert in products outside so all the schools not just only in texas not just only in the nation but beyond can take advantage and why i say that because our products are research-based products meaning we follow scientific process we analyze the language development from kindergarten to middle school and we have consistent data if you follow this and this and this and this you will expect at the end this and this and this and this and this is exactly what teacher and administrator are looking for something like is there but in a consistent way and produces also the result that they would like to so that brings up a good point as far as, you know, most of our, our listeners and our, and our viewers are, um, some, are people who either have been down this path from idea to impact or are perhaps currently on it in, in, in some location along the, the track, so to speak. And many folks, I think, take away the lesson from our other guests that they should be thinking about commercializing from the beginning. I'm hearing a little bit different story here. I'm hearing about decades of uh, traditional grant-based research. And then somebody comes along and says, you've got to commercialize this. We want this out there. Was that the first time that you had thought about moving it from the traditional, uh, you know, get more grant money, do more research into putting the product out there for others to use no dr dr laura is always thinking like that okay <clears throat> and this what this what i was trying to say to you about um like the platypus metaphor right, right. We're, we're not we're not just one thing we don't just right. think in one way 
Because what happens with commercialization is you try and commercialize something and you use your academic knowledge, like use your PhD, right. to write the curriculum or design professional development or make the thing that you've made. And once you've got it, you then don't have the skill set to do anything with it mm. because you're not a business person. Like right? you don't right. have an MBA. You haven't right. worked in business for 20 years. So you're you have these barriers right. and roadblocks of, of getting the project over the line and, and to market. The thing that Dr. Lara has much more than me and I have to a certain extent is because we've worked in business or we've worked in industry. We're not just like the otter, right? The platypus right. should be an otter, but then somebody like right. just into it as well. So we're not just one thing. When we hit that roadblock, we just kind of switch gears, almost like finding that other gear in your car. And then we move into, okay, now we need to think like business people. So say my role, I'll think like a business person. I'll read contracts and I'll put like, like a, a lawyer's hat on, read this as a policy document, as a legal document. And then I might an hour later be writing an article that's going to go out through the college or go out nationally like we've just had happen. And then an hour later, I'm thinking like an educator trying to work on some curriculum. Mm. And then I'll go to a meeting and do negotiation. So we're not just one thing. And both Dr. Lara, Dr. Irby, Dr. Hong, they all think in this multifaceted way. And here's the comment I was going to make of where are universities thinking like this, mm. right? If we're not having consulting classes and like international education classes and integrating some of that MBA stuff. And I think at A&M now we do have a PhD where you start in um, like the Bush School on policy and then you come to the College of Education for your PhD. Oh, interesting. But okay. there needs to be like that route from maze as well in this like you know collaboration like crossover in the tv series like there's this crossover between maze business school and the college of education because we need a whole lot of people coming in that can write grants have a right. business-minded approach to things but don't come in like a butcher right because these are children right. so you can't come in as this is a widget i'm going to sell 10 million and you don't care about like what the consumer is getting on the desk down the pipeline at the end of this a child is consuming this curriculum so we have to think from a commercialization standpoint, but then we also have to think from an in loco parentis in the role of a parent, a mm. pedagogical standpoint about what will happen to children if we do this, right? Mm. We, can't, we can't just flip burgers and make this the ingredient because we save five cents. Mm. Maybe we spend $2 and that's the choice that we make as educators mm. that might be counter to how you'd behave in a business world. But we'll, we'll find that line between like commercialization, innovation, thinking as educators, thinking from a business standpoint. And moreover, if we were to go entirely and think like a business, we've then pushed ourselves into a space which is counter to the mission and vision of a land-grant institution. And we've had this conversation, you know, like it would be great to, to have something where you make a ton of money. Good, bully for you. Then what do you do with it? Put it in a room and look at it? Right. When we, right. when we have all that money, we're not for profit. So every dollar you make has to come back. Mm -hmm. Right. And especially with grants, the IDCs, the whole chunk of that money is going to the university. And when we commercialize and things like that, we also have pots of money that go to different places in the university to support the university as a whole. And that's our role here. Um, but what I would say is when people are trying to innovate and trying to commercialize, they really need to think about, you know, I'm. Am I, do I, am I the shape of the animal? Am I, am I the right animal coming into this? That I have all the tools and all the skill sets that I need. And then you know really clearly, it's crystal clear, who your PIs need to be, what colleges you need to reach out, reach out to, 
what officers can you get involved with, right? Who do you need to talk to? Like we could not have proceeded without coming to Innovation Partners, without talking to TTC, right? Without attending a whole lot of like webinars and lectures on mm-hmm. innovation and commercialization. Because getting, getting your license, when you have the license to commercialize and you turn it over, there's no instructions on the back. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> it's not like an Ikea thing where you're putting like a bed <laughs> together, right? So you, you have to still figure this stuff out and it takes a long time. But what we've done, because we're the icebreaker on innovation for the College of Education, what right. we've done is as we've moved through this process, we've gone through all these learning curves that A, should make the next time we do this easier for us. And we're in the process with Let's Talk Clients are doing exactly the same thing as we did with Stella, right? We're in the process of innovation again and, and commercialization again with lots of products and services that we'll talk about at the end, I believe. Um, but the second thing is that those who come after us should have an easier road because now we know the process and they can ask us about it. They can ask you about it. We've all gone through, like all of us and Daniel and Bob and everybody right at the university, we've all gone through this understanding now. Even Frog Street, our partner, Ron Chase, now understands almost the language we need to use in conversation mm. so that we can get this done because he's talking like a publisher. We're talking like academics, like 80% academic, 20% business. Another office is speaking from a legal policy side. Another office like yourselves is speaking from like an innovation commercialization side. So as Dr. Lara said, if we're we're in dual language, our dual language is academics and and that commercialization innovation talk. And we can't just go to the government and speak like classroom teachers because we're, we're misaligned in our conversation. And then we can't go from a government meeting and meet with a publisher and talk about the needs of grants and things like that. A publisher is not going to hear all of that conversation. So it's really been that platypus of like, who do you need to be in this space to communicate and get things done with these people? So like you're that, a really a real good piece. You're a really good teacher, Matt. Good expositor. <laughs> that was <laughs> that was really well well described and in a way that I probably haven't heard it before. And there was there is so much to unpack in what you just said. Uh, and I, maybe we can try to unpack some of it in the show today, uh, but that, that's very, 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 very rich statement. And I wanna go back to just one of the things uh, in, in that large box there. And, and one of them is uh, I have heard from some of our, um, our faculty and our researchers that the, I, their, their, their knee-jerk reaction, I should say, to the word commercialization is but I don't want to sully my pure research, you know, the stuff that I'm passionate about, that I've committed my life to, that maybe affects people, you know, and, and it could be in a negative way if it's, if it's misused. I don't want to do that because getting in the business world is going to be all about saving that last nickel, right? Saving that last penny. And you made the comment that there is this balance, this line where you as, in this case, educators, I'll just say any technician on the technical academic side has to meet with the business side, side, but the business side doesn't consume the the academic side. You don't just take the back seat and the CEO goes and and does whatever they want with the product. And thinking about those things up front, this is what I got from, from that part of the statement, is critical to put that team together or else you might actually be fighting that battle. Is that half right? Yeah, absolutely. And you've got, you've got to think about what kind of farmer you want to be, right? Think of it like farming. You have to think about what kind of farmer you want to be. If you're, if you're in pastoral farming and you've got a field of cows and then you walk into HEB and you're going to cry for five minutes in front of the stakes, 
because mm. that's your baby, right? Then don't right. be a cow farmer. Right. Right. <laughs> it's, re- it's real simple. Let Go me, into sell flowers, me, make honey, make coffee, yeah. like something more sustainable. Right? Let me you tell you what I think. Dr. Lara, good. I think that in the commercialization, everybody could be a winner or everybody could be a loser. Mm. It depends how we understand our role. Uh, we, in our career, when we get our first uh, rank, which is an assistant professor tenure, right. we're looking to secure tenure as associate level. Yeah. But when we continue thinking, well, I would like to become a full professor. And then I want to read what is the criteria. The criteria, among other things, is that you have to be a national non-researcher. National could be through books, could be through your own research. There are multiple opportunities. Right. Okay. And then I say to myself, what if I part of a special book that is implementing uh, in kindergarten schools in, in America? And then we did it. We did it. And... That was a company they sold in Texas $29 million in copies. Yeah. But for me, I got the recognition that my contribution reached a national level. Here, I'm telling my, my colleagues and administrators that we need to figure out effective way to compensate faculty for doing this type of thing because it's easy for me to say, Jack, I'm sorry, that doesn't have to deal with me. What conversation has to do with me? This is the typical people are others who are involved in business. But your your reaction was exactly correct, you know, business, business, people in education, education. But yeah, but we had to make an effort to see how we together can contribute. So at the end of the day, everyone is a winner. Right. That's in my, my, my personal point too. The biggest piece, Jack, that I see with um, academics is that they're really protective of what they've done. Mm-hmm. But And it's almost a, a, a duplicity to their thinking. They're, they're really protective of, of their ideas and their intellectual property. But then also they want everybody to use it. Right, right. <laughs> so it, it, it right. creates an interesting space for almost like how do you wrestle that out of their hands in a way right. that, they can, they, that they can let go of it. Um, for us, our thinking, my, my thinking and Dr. Lara's thinking is that we want to get this idea out the door because we've got 50 more. Mm. And what I would say to the folks that are kind of like holding on to that one bit of curriculum or that one idea or that one PD or, you know, that one book they're trying to write and they're going to do it right. for the next 10 years. You've got more ideas. You just don't know it. And, and with Dr. Lara, the pre-K curriculum that they wrote was the first of its type, the one that was talking about the $29 million. That was the first of its type. So for you now in this webinar, it feels like Stella is, is the first, the beginning, the, the iteration of this thing. But really, this is a whole series of mm-hmm. curriculum innovation from Dr. Lara and Dr. Irby and you know, Cindy Guerrero and Dr. Tong. So it looks like the first time, but it's just the first time for you. right? You. And, and in Dr. Lara's mind, it's almost like this huge bookshelf. And he's mm-hmm. got like idea 372 is Stella. <laughs> and there's a there's a cathedral of books in there, right? Ready ideas that are the next things that we can do. So what we need to do with folks like Dr. Lara is just get as many of these ideas on the table and make them exist in, in as much time as we can use, right? Because this, for me personally, I'm not just trying to dig up my boss. This is a once in a generation uh, academic. 
right? This is a once in a generation intellectual that can think about these things and scale these things. Um, there's not 50 Dr. Laras in the College of Education waiting right. to move into dual language, right? So really, we have an ethical responsibility to the state and to the country to bring these ideas into existence as quickly as possible. So that sense of urgency, that sense of time, like let's not just shoot the breeze, we need to use these minutes now, right? Like mm -hmm. let's walk and talk, right? <laughs> with, with all the ideas that we have, we always have this sense of like sands running through the hourglass. Uh, and we've got to move, right? We've got to move forward. Right. Got to what move if some people say that like, you know, you're doing research or publishing, that's getting it out there. Some people would argue like that's, that's enough. And I think a lot of people are worried um, that if they do try to commercialize it, that like A&M is going to take it away. You know, that, you know, if I, if I pursue this, then what's the point? A&M will just take it from me because, you know, A&M, it's A&M's ideas, which is a myth. I mean, it's, that's not yeah. what happens. I mean, you guys know that firsthand, yeah, but why, why take it to commercialization? Why not just stop at publishing and being known for something? Because a lot of times faculty, you know, you're not getting any type of credit for commercializing something. You know, that's not typically part of the tenure checklist, mm -hmm. right? It's so not why radar, that? Yeah. It's not on the radar. Albert Einstein wrote papers. He didn't, you know, make ways of, of using you know, the general theory of relativity. So I'll leave that to somebody else. Let me get the idea out there, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, I say for the publication side, it's really easy. Yeah. We, yeah. we write yeah. stuff uh -huh. for teachers uh -huh. in classrooms and for school leaders. Mm. We yeah. know what teachers get paid in the U.S. Are yeah. you telling okay. me that okay. Okay. Remember, remember the, reading the publication? Yeah, I don't know. It's a matter of ideology. It's a matter of commitment. It's a matter of philosophy. It's a matter of, I don't know why. But uh, for us to be where we are, we have to say thank you for our uh, sponsor institution, the federal government. Those hundred million dollars never ever came from Rafael's pocket. Mm -hmm. um, the, way, the federal government would say, you guys, you're wrong. From people of the United States who make possible through taxes to provide these opportunities. So then becomes an issue that I feel extremely like going to, after going to the church, to know that my, my contribution are being used in schools. I, I don't know, I have a decent salary here in Texas and then enough for me to continue living. And, uh, and I feel extremely happy to know that our contribution uh, will reach uh, different places. Texas and then will get some money, the system some money, the college some money, the department some money. Um, everyone is going to get something. But the most important is to be sure that this product of education is going to reach people who need this opportunity to be better prepared. I know, Elizabeth, I'm with you, immediately with you. But again, to conduct this type of research that makes possible at the end this quality product is extremely expensive, extremely expensive. Mm. Nobody in our college talk in the way that we talk, $100 million. Yeah, I know it's all our life. But here, our result right now, again, you know, that's the same as $8 million. And Washington said, congratulations, you were the only university in the United States that was recommended for the status funding. The other seven, the other six, sorry, were private business. Private business. Mm -hmm. I'm sending wow. the message. You are now running in the correct, correct way. 
you will be behind. Join us next week for part two of this discussion with Dr. Lara and Dr. Etchels, where we will continue to talk about the process that they went through to help commercialize their curriculum into what is now um, called Stella with the company Frog Street. We'll see you next week.